was awesome. <laughs> I have more intro. Sorry. Every time I watch this movie, I have to honk. <laughs> I have to do the beetly honks. It's really, I become the scat. Scat goose sounds like a goose that poops a lot. I become the zoot suit goose. Yeah, that's cool. Welcome. Welcome to Watching Movies at the Bar, a podcast about bar movies movie bars, and the swingin'est podcast in town. It's so money, baby. I'm beautiful baby, Bethy Squires, and with me is sweet honey baby, Thomas Grivitsky. Hi, everybody. I, I hadn't heard um, sweet honey baby before, but Bethy told me I had to catch that intro cold, and uh, I feel good about <laughs> it. It was important to me. I feel good about it. Um, I I'm obsessed with... Vince Vaughn's characters, like taxonomy of people in this movie. We're talking about swingers here, people. We're talking about the swing revival. We're talking about the indie boom. We're talking about, first and foremost, we're talking about the fact that John Favreau was on a house team at IO in Chicago, which is disgusting to me. <laughs> I can't take that information. <laughs> That's how he met Ron Livingston. They were both in IO together. That's wild. Um, and now John Favreau is directing um, the Lion King movie, where the lions don't express. They are photoreal. And I, I don't really understand it. The, the live-action, completely real, computer-animated, beautiful babies, sweet honey babies of the Lion King. <laughs> Simba's so money, he doesn't even know it. Oh, he, that's the thing. He doesn't, and then he finds himself and discovers his inner money. That's like the plot of the movie. Yeah. And Favreau brought brought that energy. That's why people love that movie. It's the first time the lions have really felt money in the history of Lion King. Before we get deeply into this movie, uh, let's talk about how we first interacted with this movie. I had not seen it for years, but people... I the first, the first way that I had interacted with this movie is that a character in one of my favorite movies of all time, Survive Style 5 Plus would say, you're so money <laughs> in the movie. He was doing a Swingers reference in that movie. So that's that's how I knew of Swingers. Was It was in Survive Style 5+. Plus. And then this year, during the pandemic, I really started missing Los Angeles, even though I was still inside of Los Angeles. So I watched Swingers for the first time so I could see the interior of bars that I missed. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. And the movie does a really good job of that. Yeah. How did you first encounter Swingers? Um, Swingers is a movie that was on my radar for a long time, but I watched it for the first time when I was actually interning um, in Los Angeles for the first time. I had just turned 21, um, and my brother uh, very enthusiastically recommended to me both Swingers and Collateral as these like quintessential L.A. movies, uh, and they're... Very different visions of Los Angeles. I, I, I'll be honest, I like Collateral a lot more. I think it's it's incredible. Swingers is a movie that I think has 
a really peculiar texture, and I'm glad we're talking about it. But I'm, I'm maybe less of a fan. But uh, yeah, no, I had just turned 21. I was living in L.A., and uh, there was this big anti-climax because people weren't really carding me when I went to bars, and I, 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 was, I was hoping to have that experience. Oh, yeah. I, I was 21 in a college town in Indiana, so I got hella carded everywhere. That's cool. Uh, my 21st birthday was sad. My um, bringing up our partners again. I feel like there's going to be a lot of partner talk on this show. Uh, Colin couldn't hang out with me on my 21st birthday because he had to go to his brother's high school graduation. So I just <laughs> got I just got a gimlet at a Greek restaurant by myself. That's incredible. That's all I did. Because I was reading, I was reading Raymond Chandler so long goodbye, and there's this like really long section about gimlets, and I was like, "That's my drink now," and it's still really good. I'll probably take a break and make one during this pod- podcast recording. Yeah, that's good shit. I'm actually drinking a beer to better realize the visceral watching movies at a bar vibe. Uh, my 21st birthday was not super eventful either. I um. I remember uh, my mom got mad at me for uh, buying a case of beer, even though I was uh, 21. So that was a unique experience. And then um, my buddy drove a few hours from Minnesota to hang out with me. And after two beers, he was throwing up uh, and I was patting him on the back. So it was it was not that tight. Wow. that It's really cool that somebody drove hours to you for your birthday, <laughs> but it's it's less cool that they drove hours to throw up at you. Yeah. Uh, we had breakfast together, though. That was awesome. Uh, and I was 21 That's by that cute. point. Um, so one thing about Swingers is that I refuse to learn the names of any character in this movie. <laughs> I just call them by their actress names. And I was going to dare you to name a single character name in this movie because... It just does not stay in my brain, that information. But it, it sounds like you know at least one of their names. I do. From our pre-recording talk. Yeah. For the listeners, not to offer too much of a peek behind the curtain, but right before this, I wanted to confirm with Bethy the names of the three main characters to make sure that I remembered correctly. And she goes, no, I have a reason for this. Um, so yeah, I know Favreau is called Mike. Uh, I know Vince Vaughn plays a character called Curtis, I believe. Um, I think it's Trent. Oh, you're right. It's Trent. But I just Trent. Vaughn. Wait, who the fuck is Curtis then? I don't know. Yeah. Is there a Curtis? Well, you know, we're... Is that the teacher from Boy Meets World is named Curtis in the movie, maybe? Uh, look, we're swingers experts here, uh, but that does not <laughs> extend to knowing the names of all of the characters. Uh, I know Favreau is called Mike. Or any of the characters. <laughs> I'm going to call Favreau Mike. I call him Fav in my notes. <laughs> Because I think it reminds me of Fab Fabrizio Moretti from The Strokes. Oof. Who? I w- and that endears him to me a little bit more. Yeah, I was not going to say who we love. I was just going to speak for myself. But I'm glad that we both are uh, fab heads. <laughs> I love a fab. Um, so, yes, in my notes, they're all just their names. And uh, we're going to talk about it now. We're going to get into it. First and foremost, this movie is about John Favreau, who is the first man to have ever broken up with a woman. And it's huge news in his entire friend circle. Yeah, he's a, he's a lot. Um, I, <laughs> I, 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 I think it is very much the intention, but John Favreau is insanely unlikable uh, for at least half of the movie. But those opening scenes, you really are acclimating to the world of this film where John Favreau 
makes you want to kill him. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone has ever better embodied the like terrible childhood friend you've long since outgrown, but still for some reason support vibe um, than John Favreau in this movie. It's incredible. I was I was reading a oral history of this movie on Grantland. And I did not get the feeling that anybody involved with the movie knew that John Favreau was the villain of the piece. <laughs> it still it still comes across like when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, these guys know he sucks, right? You don't necessarily get that like when Doug Lyman talks about it. It's like this movie about bros hanging out and about their love and the love of guys, just guys being dudes. And it's like, oh, I thought you were doing like a like a satire here yeah to me i think you like that that character to me feels so unlikable on the surface to the point where it's like it's like matthew broderick in election right where like it's just like you're you're laughing at this really embarrassing man terrorizing a child who's made him feel emasculated like john favreau is not quite like villain level in this movie but you like kind of hate him at the beginning and it's a bummer that that was not the intention because I actually think the movie works on those grounds. Like, to me, his arc is from being deeply unlikable to being, like, kind of likable in his final exchange with Heather Graham. Mm-hmm. But I guess that uh, is a viewer interpretation and not necessarily the intention. I guess we're supposed to be rooting for him. And maybe it's one of those things where he's your guy and you can, like, raz him for how he's dumb but you're still supposed to be, like, in his corner in the long run. I could see that, where it's, like, almost a makeover movie. Yeah, I can see that, too. I I think after a certain point, I'm sort of rooting for him. And I think one of the great things the movie does is in increasingly makes that character really pathetic, right? And it starts with his jokes just fucking bombing in Vegas, which is really funny. Like, when he makes his Voltaire joke, and he tanks, and he thinks he's really smart, and the waitress doesn't understand, and she just kind of rolls her eyes, like, that's really great. And then when he shows up at the next bar, and he's making jokes about being a stand-up comic, and it's just fucking crickets. Uh, I love that stuff. I think it's really good. If there's a villain of the movie, it's Jon Favreau. If there's a hero of the movie it's the city of los angeles 100% it is la baby the movie starts with just some iconic 1600 film shots of la that you know that they just cheated they like got got like their nikon out and took little snappies with their guys of a night i made a list i made a list of the places i'm gonna list them now uh the smog cutter canters one of the gallerias i don't know which galleria a place that looks like austria labuca but i could be wrong about that (laughs) fat burger on santa monica musso and frank i think i saw joel from the frolic room in that but i could be wrong shout out to joel from the frolic room he is my guy shout out did i ever tell you that one time uh i took Steph and like a couple other people to the frolic room on March 11th, which is 311 day. And uh, <laughs> 311 has a song about the frolic room. So when you go there on 311 day, <laughs> it's holy wild. shit. It was like everybody, everybody there was there for the same reason. And that reason was to explain to me why they were there. It was less to be there and celebrate 311. <laughs> it was more to inform me, Bethy, about their reasons for celebrating 311. 
and why it's like because there's a song there's a song all fuck you get it right like they wrote a song about here so it's like on their day we all like everybody like everybody here is like are like real 311 heads and it's like cool i think it's really fucked up that anyone feels the need to explain uh the sanctity of 311 you don't need to do that everyone knows 311 rocks it's true they have amber colored energy and we should respect and appreciate that i do um I, I got derailed by my 311 day reminiscences, but uh, I'm not done listing just the places that shoot in the movie and then also just like those opening titles. Uh, they also show off the Formosa, Rockin' Ralphs, the 101 Coffee Shop, the Los Feliz Par 3, Three Clubs, what was the Derby but is now called Mess Hall, the, and then uh, the Dresden. And then in Vegas, we've got the Fremont Casino and the Peppermill Diner. So these are all very... You left one out. Great. I did. Tell me. El Coyote. I, I'm so glad you left that out because I wanted to say it. There was a flash of El Coyote and I was so stoked to see it. <sighs> I miss her. See, Beth, you're going to be revisiting Swingers once again to get a glimpse of El Coyote. Uh, and we'll yes, eat there soon. Thomas is on first name basis with some of the servers at El Coyote, and I am extremely jealous of that. Yeah, I used to work two blocks away, and so I would pick uh, one day a week when I was having uh, the, the least fun day at work, uh, and I would have a nice lunch at El Coyote. I miss it. This segues into my first talking point, since L.A. is the hero of the film. What are your favorite moments of having lived in Los Angeles? Huh. Off the top of my head, I don't know about favorite moments, but I can think of some memorable nights out. How's yeah. that? Is that, that does that work? That is very swingers. That's money, baby. That's money, baby. Okay, I'll hit you with two. Um, so uh, when I moved to L.A., uh, I'd been here for a couple of months. Uh, I was working in film, so occasionally I would see people who I had admired growing up, and I knew not to be weird around them, and I had kind of gotten the hang of that but i went with a friend to see this band lush um which is like a shoegaze band um they, they were playing the roxy on like a reunion date and i'd been really good about not being a weirdo when i saw famous people in la but we're standing there we're watching the show at fucking rocks and i realize i'm standing behind davy havoc <laughs> from afi it, it, it davy havoc is standing there like holding hands with a man uh, and it's just like Davy Havoc, who is this like very brawny queer icon. And suddenly I don't care that Lush is happening, no matter how much I love Lush. I'm just staring at Davy Havoc and thinking about how much AFI meant to me in middle school. And I know this is ultimately a pretty mundane L.A. story. But to this day, the most starstruck I've been in Los Angeles was standing behind Davy Havoc. <laughs> so... Uh, that's memorable night out number one. Do you have do you have any any AFI thoughts or? I don't have necessarily AFI thoughts, but I had a very similar experience when I saw Bruce Valanche at the ArcLight Cinerama Dome. <laughs> I'm just like losing my mind again. It was him on a date with with a young a young fella, and just going, "That's Bruce Valanche. He's and he's got one of his <laughs> funny T-shirts on. Oh, just like." Just like on the Hollywood squares, just like in the film Get Bruce. And I was just, 
it was I was losing my mind that like my to, for me the closest theater to me is the ArcLight Hollywood and it's also Bruce Valanche's like hangout spot. So me and Bruce are like that now. Clearly. 100%. And and since you don't you don't see us, you just hear us. Bethy crossed her fingers like she and Bruce are tight. I figured people would would understand like when you make that little in their voice, people know that you're doing the finger thing. Oh yeah, another favorite moment of LA isn't even it's another ArcLight Hollywood moment. Uh, I used to work out at the gym in that same complex, and when is that the LA Fitness twenty four hour fitness, which I don't go to anymore because they're was a police shooting of an unhoused person so i had to quit that gym to boycott it woof because they called the cops on somebody and then the cops shot somebody anyway i used to sit on the exercise bikes and stare out at the cinerama dome and which was especially nice for me when godzilla like 2018 came out the one with millie bobby brown they had this inflatable godzilla like barfing up a laser beam they had it <laughs> bursting out of the dome and like they made like fake inflatable like wreckage of the roof where Godzilla fucked it up. So I would just sit there and bike and watch pigeons land on a fake inflatable Godzilla and I was like, I love Hollywood. This fucking rock. <laughs> yeah, that's cool as hell. <laughs> um right down the street, uh Another great L.A. memory. I was at the Palladium seeing Against Me open for Bad Religion. And I had a great time during Against Me. And I I cared less about Bad Religion, which is going to get me in trouble with our fans who are older than me. But um, (laughs) I decided that for, for at least part of that, I wanted to go down into the circle pit. And so I went down into the circle pit and I had a beer in each hand. Again, I had just moved to L.A. I was a child. But, uh... I walked into the circle pit and there was uh, what looked to be an ex-Marine, just like the most jacked dude I've ever seen in camo shorts stomping around. And he windmill kicked me in the chest. Uh, I went down, the beers went flying, uh, and my arm was so stiff I couldn't move it, but I still had to go to the satellite to see my friend's band play. So I was unable to use my left arm for the next three hours of that night, but continued to rock. And that to me is... The spirit of swingers. That story? I can't believe it. That was a bad religion joke. Oh, that's good. A lyric in 21st century. Our older fans, the the fans older than me are going to like that. The old heads are going to love that one. (laughs) More little background bits about swingers that I learned today. Something that I suspected was that they spent more money on the music licensing than they did on making the movie. <laughs> that made sense. I was list- I was watching it, and it was like they were playing uh, Dean Martin and Average White Band and all of these, and like the Jaws theme, and I'm like, this is fucking expensive. Ton of money. <laughs> and I was right. It, it was so much more money than what they did for just shooting it because they cheated all their shots. They stole... Uh, they shot in the casino for free. Oh, somehow. shit, really? Their line producer just sweet-talked the owner of the Fremont Casino into letting them shoot. Because they wouldn't, they didn't stop to light anything. They just used the lighting that they had. Right. So they never had to shut anything down. So they would just get permission, not get permits, but get permission and shoot stuff in, like, three clubs and Dresden and Fremont, like, for free. That rocks. 
That's rock and roll filmmaking. That's that's what takes this from three stars to three and a half stars for me. <laughs> yeah. And um, most of the film was shot using the short ends, which are like the little bit of film that like a real movie doesn't use. It's remnants of film. They use the short ends off of Twister. So oh my this was God. all film that Twister said no thanks to. And then they took it. And it had to be, it was like 60 seconds at a time. So if there's ever like a weird cut, it's because they can only do 60 seconds of film at a time. That's extremely cool. I didn't know any of this. It's crazy. Like, I think Swingers is one of those movies almost like in TV tropes, it's called Seinfeld is Unfunny, where it's like when you are the trope codifier, when you are the thing that everybody else is kind of copying. In retrospect, it's not as like crazy and groundbreaking and innovative. So like the plot of Swingers is whatever, but the fact that they did it so DIY, like today isn't a huge deal because we all have iPhones. We can just shoot a movie on our fucking phones, but that they did it then is crazy and that it it helped create the market for everybody else's tiny film can't be undercounted. Yeah, no, I I think that's fucking awesome. I also should say, I know we're, we're, you know, goofing, goofing on Swingers quite a bit, but I do like the movie uh i just have some misgivings mm-hmm. um but bethy i know you're the you're the swing revival historian and so this movie is an important text <laughs> in your scholarly work it's hugely important in my scholarly work thank you <laughs> thomas it's true i bought a book about the swing revival <laughs> i'm gonna hold it up to you uh they can't see here. They can hear it. Oh, one of my bookmarks fell out. Oh, we're not going to find out what this looks really cool. The lead singer of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy had to say, but it's called Swing. Yeah, this is amazing, and the cover looks like uh, that opening kind of dream sock hop sequence in Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that helps you visualize, but it's uh, it's all red and yellow. This is an incredible book because. The person who wrote it says that the swing revival is the new punk rock because it brought back manners. Jesus Christ, what? <laughs> and, and also that um, the 90s was a new depression of the spirit. I'm going to quote it now. This part is this part is a quote. Despite alleged economic prosperity, homelessness is more pervasive than ever. Lack of job security has never been so pandemic. And thanks partly to AIDS, social relations are incredibly complex and conflicted. Fraught with peril and subject to sudden termination, society is fragmented into tens of thousands of special interest groups vying for public attention. Life has become complicated, requiring infinite levels of sensitivity, attentiveness, and negotiation at every turn. And the net result is perpetual exhaustion, almost anomie. (laughs) Not to mention the information overload inundating us all. And and then he says that uh, depression may be caused by mental factors, but ultimately resides in the body. So the body must provide the cure. And that's why uh, <laughs> swing dancing is the cure for AIDS, according to this guy. This is the most insane book ever written. <laughs> when I started reading it, I was reading it on the porch and I would just like stop and have to come in and yell something at Colin and be like, and then he said that it brought back manners, and that's more punk rock than anything. Wait, but it's it's so absurd for anyone to posit that the swing revival was, like, the peak of 90s music culture. Like, if you think about, like, 90s alternative rock and hip-hop, like, 
all of that shit rules uh, and completely paved the way for anything that's cool now. Swing Revival, what the fuck? So a lot of people interviewed in this book feel that any use of, like, a drum machine is, like, the death of art or whatever. But not Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. They're all for sampling. They're all for drum machines. They compose all of their music on using loops, using computer, like, Pro Tools. They're fine. But everybody who ran, like, Swing Magazine is, like, low-key racist and, and using their love of union-made shirts to, like, get that racism out there. They're like, the culture is bad now because coffee is expensive and people like rap. And I just wish wingtips were respected again, goddammit. Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's an incredible book. But the mention of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, it can't be overstated how insane it is that that band, by name, is a cornerstone of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a weird cultural relic, but it figures so prominently in the movie. And, like, they're, they're fucking ridiculous. I, 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 can't, I can't take it seriously. We're going to get to Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, but I do want to go... I'm going to try and go a little chronologically, just so that there's any semblance Please. of... So people can understand where we're coming from. So as we've stated, John Favreau is the character's name, and he's the first man to have ever broken up with a woman, and he's so sad. And everybody in his life is fine with him being really sad about his first breakup ever, and nobody ever gets mad at him for being the death of fun every time, everywhere he goes. <laughs> they just want him to be happy, goddammit. So Vince Vaughn who has a name in this movie, but whose real name is Vince Vaughn, takes John Favreau to Las Vegas to try and fix his life. It's going to be so money. Uh, John Favreau is so money baby, and there's going to be so many nice <laughs> babies in Las Vegas. Uh, I made... I forgot to, like, make the real chart, but you know that, that political chart that's, like, uh, a four quadrants and it's like a scale on one scale is like authoritarianism and the other scale is like left wing or right wing yeah yeah. so there's four quadrants uh so there's baby and not baby <laughs> and money <laughs> and not money so here's here's how vince vaughn thinks in this movie if someone is both baby and money they are john favreau that is the only person who is both baby and money simultaneously <laughs> If somebody is money, but not baby, then they're daddy. And Vince Vaughn thinks of himself as daddy. If somebody is baby, but not money, they are a honey baby or a nice baby. So that's pretty much every woman. There are no women who are money, I think, in Vince Vaughn's world. Bethy, this is incredible. And then if you are neither baby nor money, you're a skank. And to be fair to Vince Vaughn, it's only John Favreau's character who refers to all women as skanks constantly in this it's, movie. It's pretty deranged. But like when when I was I, I so I revisited this on Sunday to let's just say I revisited this a couple days ago. I don't know when people are gonna be listening to this, but uh when when priming myself for this episode, I couldn't believe how much the word skank is used in addition to money and baby. And, and I, I'm sure that skank, money, and baby were used much more in the 90s than they are now, but it still felt egregious. It was almost like 
its own distinctive fictional register. Like at some point I felt like I was watching a clockwork orange and this is the NADSAT of Vince Vaughn and, and John Favreau in this movie is the baby money, baby money, skank money situation. The the line that I've been just whispering to myself like while I make eggs, it, Vince Vaughn, when he's trying to convince John Favreau to go to Vegas, he says, baby, there's going to be so many beautiful babies. or possibly there's gonna be so many beautiful babies baby it's just i know that there's multiple babies everyone but vince vaughn is baby in that sentence and that's beautiful vince vaughn is daddy yeah everyone else is baby except for skanks if i were to close my eyes and watch this movie i would think it was about two enterprising daycare managers (laughs) who were traveling to vegas uh to find new clients it's like the third movie in the daddy daycare trilogy yeah daddy daycare is actually swingers too but people thought like too much time had passed (laughs) so they just changed the name it's like how Die Hard 2 was an unrelated movie, and then they just put the Die Hard sequel thing on it, but in reverse. Yeah, no, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, I think now is the time to play the game, and the game is called Money or Not Money. And this is oh, when wow, you, I didn't you tell uh, me... prepare for this. Oh, that's because you're the contestant. I'm the game show Got host, it. which makes me daddy. Got it. And I think makes you the money baby. <laughs> well, it depends. I'm We're going to find out that. whether you're money or not, because only people who are money know what is or is not money. Okay, cool. This is not whether you think something is money or not. This is whether or not Vince Vaughn's character, who we said is a turnip. Trent. Turnip. Tugboat. <laughs> he's called, he's called whether Turnip. Tig. Uh, whether Vince Vaughn's character in the movie Swingers... Tig thinks something is money or not. Uh, bowling shirts, are those money or not money? Money. That is money. So we got one on, you're right on one. The Vegas yes. Strip. The Vegas Strip is money. The Vegas Strip, not money. Vegas Strip is played out. You, They go downtown. Shit. Okay. So you're one to one. And this is the tiebreaker. This is the tiebreaker. Got it. Got it. Rampant incel misogyny. Money. Yeah, that's so money. That's incredibly money. It's extremely money. money. It's extremely money. You've won the game. You've won the game, money or not money. Thank you so much for playing. I'm going to put a bit of game show music. You win being a sweet money baby. A beautiful honey baby. That's, That's pretty cool. That's enough for me. So, they're in Vegas, baby. The thing that I love the most about the Vegas scene is is how long it takes to get there. That is a beautiful encapsulation of... From LA to Vegas, for people who don't know, it is just long enough to lose your interest in going to Vegas. That is one of the funniest things. That is one of the funniest things in the movie, where they cut from their very enthusiastic Vegas to them half asleep, just Like nodding out while driving. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff's super funny. So they go to Vegas. They try to do well at Blackjack. John Favreau, as he said, has a bunch of jokes that just fucking flop onto the ground like a dead fish. Like nobody's interested. Vince Vaughn successfully picks up a woman, kind of. It's complicated. Basically, it's very complicated. Like, John Favreau thinks that Vince Vaughn is like a god for having picked up this woman, but this woman is clearly just like down to fuck a random. Her shift is <laughs> over. She's interested in getting some before her next shift. She does not want to know this man ever again. And so, like, those two are just sort of like, you're cool, you're cool, cool, all right. 
it's not this like incredible moment of seduction. It's truly just that she wants to fuck and Vince Vaughn happens to not whiff that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he almost whiffs it. I mean, he's a huge asshole. And then, but then John Fravor whiffs it for him, which is great. Right. But he's got a calling card. It's a 1-800 number. It's not going to cost anything. Oh, my God. Everything about him is so embarrassing. <laughs> it's a really... That's that's the first, like, huge cringe where you're like, the movie's, the movie's got to be on our side that John Favreau's character is just a sad Yeah, the fuck. part where, like, he, he has his card and then he lies about his representation and then the woman that he's trying to, like, mack on knows, like, way more about, like, the circuits because she's also in the fucking business <laughs> and just knows way more right. about, like, booking than he does. It's incredible. That's the stuff where the movie, to me, is 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 much more self-aware than I think people mm-hmm. give it credit for. I mean, there are a lot of things about it that I don't love, and it, it's not my favorite movie, but I don't actually think it's like this big misogynistic thesis. I think all of the women in the film weirdly have a leg up on the men, or, or do you disagree uh, with that? I agree on the most part. I was like, on the one hand, I do think... With the exception of the woman at the party. With the exception... Oof. With the the two women at the party. But then also, so right as they're going back from Vegas, uh, I think John Favreau says the worst thing he says in the entire movie. Oh, God. It's when Vince Vaughn is peeing and then asks uh, Fav whether he was into the Dorothy girl. And Fav says, wonders whether the fact that he was into the Judy, that she was dressed up like, uh, she's dressed up like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. And he says, the Judy Garland thing was working for me. Does that make me a fuh slur? And you think you think that's the worst thing that he's going to be able to say in the time it takes Vince Vaughn to pee. But then he says, I had to pause it and write it down because it was an incredible. He did a, he ran all the bases with this one as far as being an asshole. He says to Vince Vaughn to explain why he no longer has game after having hooked up with his girlfriend of six years. That he he was able to pull his girlfriend. He can't pull anyone anymore. Vince Vaughn says you sure you should be able to now because you could then. John Favreau says you wouldn't understand. You didn't go to college. The girls are young. They drink. They don't know any better. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So it manages to, like, college shame Vince Vaughn and slut shame any woman who would deign to talk to John Favreau. Yeah. It's classist and sexist and incel and, like, weirdly straight edge and, like, definitely, like, the they drink is and they don't know any better is doing a lot of heavy lifting vis-a-vis consent in that line, too. yeah. I, I in, in my head, I am going to continue to maintain the fantasy that textually Mike is a moron and that the movie is in no way on his side. But I think it is slightly more complicated than that. Yeah, I think the movie is for the most part critical of him, but still on totally. his side. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree. Like, you're my guy, and that's why I'm telling you what sucks right, about you, right. is the position of the film. And whether you feel like that's a tenable position, that's you. That's the death of the author. Right. Wow. We're covering some heavy stuff tonight, folks. Speaking of really heavy, heady stuff, Ron Livingston doesn't want to play Goofy. That's his plot in the But movie. then, that actually is not entirely true. 
Okay, say more. Oh, it is. It's just. It's. It, he ultimately reveals that he would kill to play that role, right? Like he's he's downplaying it at the top, but at the end or, or near the end, when he gives his long speech to Mike about how he's got it so good and how he got dumped from the goofy role, and he says, "I'd fucking kill for that role, man." Like you, you, you know that's where he's at all along. Because in the bar earlier, he's excited to say, "Hey, I went up for Goofy," <laughs> and then the guy they meet is like, "Uh, well, you know, at least it's Disney." <laughs> he wants it more than he's he's letting on. Yeah, he's like super nagging Goofy. And here's the thing that I kept thinking about is that I don't think Ron Livingston could play Goofy. I don't think he has the physicality. I don't think he's tall enough. I, I don't he think he had be. any chance of getting that role. I don't think he could caper, but I do think that Goofy could do office space. That's that's true. I, I, would, I don't think you're wrong. I would pay so much money to watch Goofy do office space. Do we have Mike Judge's email? Can we ask? Uh, <laughs> can we ask Mike to make this happen? Hey, Mike at butthead.com. <laughs> we have... It's Beavis, Beavis.net. Beavis.gov. We have a million dollar idea for you. <laughs> so they get back from Vegas, and this is when we meet the rest of the boys. We meet Ron Livingston, and we meet... I think his name is Sue in the movie? Sue Sue is his name, yeah. Sue the, Sue the gun haver, I call him. Sue is, Sue is the racist gun haver. Yes. And we meet Fedora Hat Guy, who is one of the teachers on Boy Meets World, whose sole point in the movie is to say, this place is dead anyway. Anytime they want to go some, like, every time they want to leave somewhere, it's his job to say, yeah, this place is dead anyway. And I love that about him. He's the expert. You've got to have an expert in every friend group. So the boys are all going to, oh, God, am I the expert in our friend group? You're the historian, at okay. least. What's the Trivia master. Name? Okay, what's what is what is the expert's job? You're actually an expert in two different fields. You're an expert of both history and trivia. So yeah, you you are an expert. Okay, what are the other roles of a friend group? I and now I'm thinking about this because like I everybody needs like there needs to be an instigator in a friend group, and that's Vince Vaughn. That's the guy who like actually gets the party going. I guess Sue is the enforcer. Like in hockey, he's the guy who like steps to people. Which I don't know is actually uh, a necessary role, but it is in that group. And then Favreau is the sad, grumpy Baby. fuck who won, yes. the, won the lottery to be friends with uh, the rest of the gang. He is their child. He is he is to be taken care of. I want to talk about the scene where the movie boys are talking about all the different movies they like. And all the different movies that they're ripping off with this movie. Right, and then the movie immediately does its Reservoir Dogs homage. Yeah. Which is super funny, but I kind of like it because it's dumb. I think it's really cute. And then later they do a Goodfellas because they go through the kitchen. For some reason, they go through the kitchen of the Derby. Even though I don't think they would actually know the kitchen staff at this place. Did Swingers come out? I imagine, did Swingers film before Pulp Fiction came out? No. I don't think so. Interesting. Okay, because the way they talk about Tarantino is as if Reservoir Dogs is the only movie that he's made. That's true. Because they're talking about how Tarantino rips everything off of Scorsese, which is is so wrong uh, in every way. Yeah, because he also rips off kung fu movies. But within the context of Swingers, if they've only seen Reservoir Dogs... Yeah, I mean, he rips off a lot of stuff, right? Like, Tarantino just takes in so many different kinds of film and then kind of regurgitates his version of that, which sometimes yeah. works. But, like, 
it's just so weird to watch a movie where they say, you know, Tarantino rips off Scorsese because that's just looking at his career from 2021. That's just not true. It's very rude. Yeah. To say that he only rips off of sorry, to say he rips off just Scorsese is rude to, as we said, Kung Fu movies and Sergio Leone. And I don't even I don't have a problem with that. I think collage artists are cool and make useful art. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like I could get really really uh off on a tangent if we're talking too much about scorsese and tarantino (laughs) okay i'm the boy i'm the boy on this podcast well wait no what what is there to go off on about that though oh i just i'm gonna i'm gonna let you go for a second and then i'll pull you back if i feel like we're really losing the thread i think scorsese is like uh uh an extremely sort of like professional kind of like workman-like filmmaker and i don't say that in like the studio workman way i say that he's like responsible like generally speaking he just executes his projects really well it's always the vision is always good i think tarantino is a more chaotic filmmaker and i do think he is like you said more of a collage artist i just don't i don't actually think there are many similarities aside from them both being like canonical white male Mm -hmm. filmmakers I don't have a lot of interest in the stuff that Scorsese has interest in, but I appreciate that he seems like a down-ass bitch and that he <laughs> seems he seems to be... I don't know. I get good vibes off Marty, is I guess all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, he. it's so interesting. Like, I don't want to get too into, like, you know, discursive analysis, but I think the way people talk about him on Twitter as being this sort of, like, out-of-touch villain because he doesn't especially vibe with Marvel, it's, like, it's just so decontextualized from who he is. I mean, like, most of his work in the last few years has been producing films by women who are not super prominent filmmakers, allowing them to make really cool stuff. I mean, he's, like, producing Joanna Hogg movies and, and weird, you know, Scandinavian filmmakers you've never heard of. Like, he's... He's very much a mentor, right? Like, he's he's enabling cool art. Yeah, I think the difference is, like, I think that there are sections of, not necessarily even film Twitter, but, like, film school fellas who look at Scorsese's body of work just as the stuff he's directed and, like, take auteur theory way too to heart and don't look at Scorsese as mentor, as cutie patootie, as grandfather with huge eyebrows who will pose for whatever Instagram photo (laughs) you want. Whatever you want, baby. Like, he's much more of a team player than I think the persona that people ascribe to him. Yeah, totally. Give him. I think you really nailed it when you said the thing we don't talk about enough with Scorsese is that he's a cutie. I think that is true. He's a cutie and furthermore a patootie. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Bethy's right. <laughs> Bethy's right. So <clears throat> the boys the boys do not talk about how Scorsese's a cutie patootie. They just talk about how Goodfellas took four days to light, apparently. Uh, they also talk about how it's crazy that he shot in a casino, which is funny because they just shot in a casino. So, like, I get it. I get it. That's good. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, and then they do the Reservoir Dogs. But the thing about the Reservoir Dogs is that they do all get in five separate cars. And that's very funny. I, it's it's a great visual. It, it's it's this caravan that they take up into the Hollywood Hills. And if you if you think too much about it, imagining five of those cars trying to, trying park, to park, it's like... Cars in the hills. One of those cars finding a parking spot would be great fortune. Two would be a miracle. I'm not going to fucking talk about five. I would rather set myself aflame than park 
five cars in the hills. That's insane. I love it. It's so funny to me. Yeah. I need to read some stuff from the from the the thingy, the the oral history about this party. Uh, it was just a real party. They just threw a party and then shot in it. Uh, Mike White, who wrote School of Rock, was interviewed for this because he was at the party and he said, The house was one of the centers of partying back then. There are four guys that live there. Two of them have gone on to be successful producers, Wick Godfrey and Marty Bowen. Their production company is called Temple Hill in reference to the house. They produced all the Twilight movies, actually. Oh, hell yeah. Bethy's a huge Twilight. We're going to be talking about those on this podcast. It's a little foreshadowing. You had better believe it. And then White said, like, also that for them, for the people at, for the people shooting the movie, everybody at the party were just background. But for the people at the party, these guys were just weirdos with a camera. And he says, quote, I remember them shooting and I actually thought at the time, this is so embarrassing for them. <laughs> That's cool, though, because like jokes, <laughs> jokes on us. They made a movie that endures, you know, like people still talk about swingers, Bethy and, and, and Thomas, at least. Look, people, two people still talk about swingers. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, I want to talk about that one time that we went to a party in the Hollywood Hills that was a costume party. I didn't go to that party. You didn't go to that party? Can I tell the story no, I've, anyone, I've, though? It's, it's a legendary story, please. <laughs> um, I went to a party in the Hollywood Hills around where this, where this party happens. Uh, and it was a costume party, because it was Halloween, and it was right after the Charlottesville uh, riots. Charlottesville, you don't want to call them protests. White nationalist uprising in Charlottesville happened. And there was a guy at the party whose costume was he was in cargo shorts and like a button down, and he was carrying a tea torch. And I thought that he came to the party as a Charlottesville protester, as did all of my <laughs> friends. Everybody was, everybody was like, did you see the guy who's dressed as a Charlottesville protester? I mean, what the fuck? Fuck this guy. We hate this guy. And so we're drinking, we're hanging out, we're just like throwing eye daggers at the Charlottesville protester guy. Uh, he's on the dance. <laughs> You're, you're doing you're doing the Lord's work. He deserves those daggers. He's, he's on the dance floor, and I'm like, all right, I'm over it. Uh, something that I can't do now because we're in a pandemic is I spit on people that I don't like. <laughs> uh, That's vintage. There used to when I was a child, there was a constitution of the household it was like house rules that the whole family like we had to sit down and talk about what the rules of conduct in the house would be and the two rules were no biting and no spitting and i still cannot follow them (laughs) (laughs) i am still very bitey and still very spitty so as this party is going on we're dancing with a guy and i keep like checking him as we're like, like we're all like kind of like booty dancing, but I just keep kind of like throwing bows occasionally, and spitting on him, like Loki. I don't think he ever knew I was doing it. Or like a good one is like you'll lick your palm and then you'll be like, "Excuse me," and you just press your spit into the back of his shirt. I was doing a lot of that, and then like the next day, I get a text from somebody who's like, "Oh, turns out he was dressed up like Jeff Probst." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> he wasn't a Charlottesville protester at all. He was dressed up like the guy who hosts Survivor. And I was just spitting on a poor Bethy, man. Bethy, you're at this party like half an hour. doing guerrilla terrorism to this dude. <laughs> You're just you're just ruining his night. You've got everyone mocking him a, a without his knowing. Sigh up to this man, and he's just wanted to be Jeff Probst when yeah. he grew up. And you find out he's he's lovely. Uh, oh well. Well, yeah. You know, I wasn't at that party. I was at a different party. <laughs> Who'd you spit on at your party? Did you hawk a luke as a guy who turned out to be dressed like powder from powder? No, I I mean, I wish I could do that. I, when I go to a party, I just kind of smile at people and uh, try, to, <laughs> try to be polite. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dichotomy yeah. at work on uh, watching movies at the bar. Yeah, watching movies at the bar is a podcast where one person just tries to be a nice guy and one person... Who still has to have a sign in their house that says, don't spit. Hey, stop spitting. (laughs) And quit biting. Uh, That's cool. In fairness to me, I only bite people that I like. It's more like a love nip than anything else. Right. She was spitting. She was spitting on the Charlottesville rioter. But then when she found out that he was (laughs) Jeff Probst, she started biting. And that's how you knew that my heart had softened (laughs) to him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they fuck off from the party uh, where they're drinking a bunch of doers, and then he goes. they go to the Dresden where he orders a doers, and it does make me wonder if this movie was sponsored by doers. What is going on there? Yeah, I'm sure there's money there. They, my experience of watching the movie this time was much different after living a block from Dresden for two years of my life. Uh and I think it was like the two years right before I met you, Bethy. I used to live on Prospect in Vermont there, oh, so just down the street. Yeah. Did you ever go to Dresden? I did, yeah. I went to Dresden a fair amount. I went to Rustic more mm-hmm. um, and good luck, but uh, no, Dresden rules. I love to get a wedge salad there, like in the dining room, not even in the club part with Marty and Elaine. I like to go to the fancy side and get escargot and a wedge salad like I'm... Oh, Grandpa. Yeah, I think what I get there is fried zucchini and, like, whatever their highest gravity beer is. And then I see whatever is playing at the Los Feliz 3. And that is a night out in Los Angeles for me. (laughs) This movie premiered at the Vista. Isn't that cute? That's very cute. I love that. Once they sold it to Miramax, they had a little mini premiere for friends at the Vista. I love the Vista. We'll, we'll, we'll do true romance on this podcast. Yeah. There's a beautiful Vista appearance in that movie. So, Fav tries to hit on a chick and say that he's, like, known for his stand-up. And then she's like, no, you applied for a job at Starbucks when I was working there. And <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then his friends tell him that he is a bear who needs to murder this bunny of a woman. Uh, which, again... Again, I ask, maybe the first, for the first time on podcast, is this really how straight people be? I think maybe, maybe in 1996. I think probably less so now. I also think the people that you and I hang out with, Bethy, are maybe not quite in that zone. This um, is the wrong but... podcast to determine what straight people are like, but I, it's, I... <laughs> this can't be it, right? No, I mean... <laughs> It's not all murder metaphors, is it? I don't think so. The other thing he says, though, that to me is almost weirder is he says 
you're not the sweet guy in a PG-13 movie who's who everyone's rooting for. You're the guy in the R-rated movie who people haven't decided if they like yet. You're a bad man. Uh, and I just I, I I've been thinking about that a lot the last couple of days. It's a weird way to make you make you like Mike by saying you know be the be the bad man. So weird, and that's not who he is either. It's really fucking weird, but that also is like not really a description that I understand. I don't I don't really understand the PG thirteen man everyone's rooting for versus the R rated man who. You're not sure you like yet. I, I just I, I can't really think of good examples of that. Uh, like a PG thirteen guy, everyone's rooting for would be like the lead in Can't Hardly Wait. Okay. And then an R rated man that nobody's sure about. Freddy Krueger. Yeah, no, <laughs> those movies are PG thirteen. No, 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 they're fully R. Okay, they're fully R, but they he's not. They're not on the fence. About no, I'm him. kidding. Everyone everyone knows Freddy Krueger. He's a bad guy. He's a noted child murderer, <laughs> but like master punster. So like, ooh, real fence, real on the fence about that guy. Yeah, the thing he and Vince Vaughn in this movie have in common is that they both think babies are money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And that if you're neither money nor baby, you are a skank. Yeah, that's a classic Freddy Krueger line. After getting this pep talk about be more like Freddy Krueger, John Favreau does actually get her number, and the guys ask about the area code. They say eight one eight, and he says three one zero, and they say nice. And I've been thinking about that all week. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't, I, I haven't. <laughs> I can't imagine. I guess for me, I I break out in like stress hives the minute I go west of uh, Fairfax. So the idea of being excited about a 310, like a Beverly Hills, like a West LA area code, I can't imagine. I would rather, much rather have an 818, a fucking Valley area code to hang out with. Yeah, I prefer my uh, rural Iowan area code, actually. that's What uh, is your rural Iowan area code? Uh, that would be 641. Okay. Mine is 812. That's cool, There's too. one off I... from the Valley, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. I just thought it was like a cute... It shows you what kind of guys these are. These are guys with West Los Angeles aspirations. Yeah, these are these are what they call phone number guys. Yeah, they really love phones. <laughs> uh, when they leave the Dresden, they accidentally bump shoulders with the Caucasian kings. Just some real white trying to be gangbangers. And then Sue pulls a gun on them. And everyone flips out because Sue has a gun. Which is fair. Why'd he bring a gun? And he says, you don't know, you're not from here. And they're like, you're not from here either. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> He's from Anaheim. He's from Anaheim. And and then Sue says that, uh, you know, he might have, you know, sure, I'm a weirdo who brings a gun to the Dresden noted uh, like lounge act place, the Dresden. But you, John Favreau. <laughs> haven't gotten laid since you moved here. And I don't think he means this, but I think in a way Sue is right, because John Favreau as an incel is almost as likely to be a mass shooter as Sue, who is a gun owner. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, which one is actually going to hurt someone with that gun? I think it might be John Favreau. Yeah, we're looking at this through the prism of the uh, 20 years that would follow. Yeah, 
I think that's part of why maybe we have a different vibe with Mike, Mikey. Yeah, yeah. Why he sucks so bad now? Yeah, I I like this scene a lot. I think this is 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 top two or three scenes in the movie for me. Because I, I think even though Swingers takes place over the course of like several, I think it's it's like weeks of movie ish or like two weeks yeah yeah but it's like it has the energy of like a a one wild night out kind of movie mm-hmm. and so like even though it's like almost a moment of rupture when sue pulls the gun i'm like nah this is just another crazy thing that's happening while these guys are out i love it and it turns out to be fine because after john favreau like goes into a k-hole of his own sadness after sue says you've never had sex on the west coast and then John Favreau's like, you're right. And he cries for like three weeks straight and then like pulls himself together and goes to hang out with, with all of these guys again. They go to Sue's house and Sue's right, hanging but... out with those gangbangers that he had. Wait, no, no, no. no okay. Sorry. You're skipping the most harrowing oh, yeah, scene yeah, yeah, in the yeah, movie yeah. for me. There's a scene in Swingers that makes my skin fucking crawl. <laughs> Like almost nothing I've ever seen, which is that John Favreau, after a movie of just sort of tanking ass, striking out every every time he's at bat, he gets the phone number. He's hit it off with a real human being. He wasn't a total asshole about it. Uh, and rather than waiting at least until the morning to call her, he calls her at like three a.m. and he starts drunkenly rambling and. The, the voicemail's timer runs out, and so he calls back again. And these voicemails get progressively more deranged as he keeps calling and trying to explain himself. And after seven of them, he gets her, and she says, never call me again. And the whole thing is like the most cringe-inducing, painful scene I've seen in a movie. It's, I think that's why I glossed over it, because it's like so upsetting. <laughs> Uh, yeah. In, in the um, oral history, Doug Lyman said that it was the only shot that he actually locked off on a tripod because he wanted to like really stick you in it. <laughs> everything else is yeah. handled. Everything else is loosey goosey. But this scene, there is no escape from this man's bad choices. <laughs> I felt more claustrophobic watching those voicemails than whatever that fucking buried that like ninety-minute movie where Ryan Reynolds is like in a casket buried underground, and it's just these like tight shots of him. <laughs> John Favreau on the phone, much worse, much worse. Than, than than Ryan Reynolds being buried alive. I hope I didn't say Gosling. I meant Reynolds. You said Reynolds. Good. After that, he somehow decides to. It's like well. I guess this is my nadir. I better come out of it. And they all go to the derby for... Go, daddy <laughs> They go to a swing night at the derby. And how they met Big Bad Voodoo Daddy is that John Favreau was at the derby every Wednesday night when he was trying to get financing for the movie. This is just like a place where all the cool people hung out. And that's where he went. And he started dancing with the lead singer's girlfriend. And she taught him how to swing dance. And he was like, I want you to be in my movie. So he gives the script of Swingers to the lead singer. And is like, read it. Let me know what you think. I'll see you next Wednesday. Goes back to swing night. The lead singer, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, does not read the script. Could not give even 
one shit about this script. But John Favreau is there early, like before they're even setting up. He's like, did you read it? Do you want to be in it? What's the deal? And so big bad, Mr. Bad Voodoo Daddy says, yeah, yeah, I loved the script. Let's do it. Just to like be nice, essentially. And that gave this man the rest of his career, essentially. <laughs> like Swingers does such enough business at on in like video and like with with like the fancy the fancies of Hollywood that the swing revival happens and for the rest of of Mr. Big Bad Voodoo Daddy's career he owes it to just not reading the swingers script and going uh yeah sure let's do it that's crazy yeah I wonder if that beautiful marriage of John Favreau and Cherry or uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy is why Cherry Poppin Daddies got their big break on the Meet the Deedles soundtrack a few years later. That does have something to do with it. Uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies did not consider themselves a swing band. They considered themselves more ska, rockabilly, but that mm. when once Royal Crown Review and Big Bad Voodoo Daddies started getting big in SoCal, when Cherry Pop and Daddies would tour through, um, people would go up to the merch stand and say, what album has the most swing songs on it we're real movie <laughs> hoppers here we love to swing and Cherry Pop and Daddy's like fuck it I guess we'll pivot to swing and so they pivot so they did a best of record that was called like Cherry Pop and Daddy's Swinginest Hits and so they just like toured on that Greatest Hits album for like five years and that's how they got the Meet the Deedle soundtrack that's incredible yeah well I'm glad <laughs> Big Bad Voodoo Daddy uh have had such an illustrious career after Swingers, but I will say they do have their detractors because uh, Bethy, you know my kittens, Apple and Tuba, they're really sweet little guys, but they don't like the sound of brass in music. Uh, (laughs) We we found this out when we watched Judas and the Black Messiah. We had that movie pretty loud. Great, great movie, by the way. I loved it. Um, But there is a lot of brass in that score, and the cats would just dive under the couch as soon as the horns would hit. They fucking hated it. And so when we were watching Swingers, as soon as Big Bad Voodoo Daddy started playing, Apple's ears shot straight out, and she and Tuba rocketed under the couch. They're like, this is bullshit. This band sucks. So, Aww. you know, they, they can have adoring fans the world over. <laughs> play your cat's cake. Slowly indoctrinate them into having a horn section. My cats have to like Comfort Eagle uh, because Comfort Eagle was very important to me uh, during a formative time in my life. I'm going to read to you something that Glenn the Kid Markevka, Marhevka of Big Bad Voodoo Daddy said in that oral history of swingers that I've been saying, talking to you about. He said, We played the Super Bowl halftime show. We played for three presidents. We played for Clinton. We played for some big dinner for Bush Sr. And we played some big dinner for Bush Jr. But you don't have to put that in there. Clinton was bitchin'. Because we got to hang with him. When he came to us, he sat with us for like 10 minutes and was completely talking to us about saxophone and about his experiences and his collection of saxophones. It was cool, man. That was an awesome experience, and that was all 100% due to Swingers. Damn. Swingers swingers connected Big Dad Voodoo Daddy with the Clinton crime family. Yeah. (laughs) With perhaps the biggest and baddest of the Voodoo Daddies. 
Yeah, I feel like we're recording an episode of Blowback now. We're tying <laughs> Big Bad Voodoo Daddy to the, 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 the crimes of the White House. <laughs> I guess the question is, which third, which swing revival band was on the Epstein flight logs? Oh, I, I, I don't want to know. It'll break my heart. <laughs> it was the Cherry Poppin' Daddies, let's be real. It's <laughs> yeah. in the fucking name. Fuck it's the Cherry Poppin' Daddies. I, uh, in, in my desk uh, at my office before covid happened i had three unopened copies of the meet the deedles soundtrack on cd which was our office at one point was by amoeba and i bought a copy on my lunch break because i thought it was hilarious that they had it and i just left it in my desk and one of my interns saw it and thought it was like very funny so he just got on amazon and i guess they manufactured way too many of those cds and he ordered three and gave them to me and the two other people in our like bullpen uh and then when the intern left no one else wanted their deedles cd so <laughs> in my drawer just meet the deedles cd the entire fucking stock i mean congrats to that intern for committing to a bit he was a he was That's a what it takes. sweet guy it came from a good place even if it didn't land for everyone yeah much like everything that John Favreau says in this movie. Oh, I mean, much like everything I've ever done. <laughs> I think we're, we're to the main crux, I think, of this film, which is, does John Favreau deserve to win Heather Graham for having one moment of character growth and figuring out that you could just talk to people like they're a person? In the real world? Absolutely not. Fuck it. In the world of swingers... Yes, because I need I I need that moment. I need I need ten minutes of kind of liking John Favreau before the movie is over. I I also think there's this weird inversion where Vince Vaughn is extremely unlikable mm-hmm. in that final one oh one nighttime scene where he's like harassing the waitress. It's like funny when he gets on the table and stuff, but like they they really swap and you kinda like Mike and you don't like Trent? Tug, tugboat. Yeah, I think... What do you think, Bethy? For the purpose of the movie, as perhaps even a didactic tool about how to conduct yourself in the world, uh, Mitch, Mingus, Minkus, Minkus from Boy Meets World, Mike. Uh, <laughs> needs to be rewarded with pussy for treating anyone like a human being like there needs to be some sort of immediate and direct reward for his iota of character growth or else the movie it doesn't shouldn't exist but again in the real world absolutely not right right um but i do i do think yeah his 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 most identifiable arc in the movie is is going from being profoundly unlikable to being like very briefly charming to being fleetingly likable which is what all of us can aspire to right i did this was the part in (laughs) when i was watching it in preparation where i did just start yelling at the screen it was twice it was a little bit before this when he's having like that extra conversation with ron livingston about how he didn't get goofy and also about how about how his life is better than his ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend's life because he has like a good union job as a, a I'm making like a buggy right because I can't remember the word for the job that, that that guy has. He drives a carriage in Central Park. Oh, he like <laughs> he mows 
Oh, Same right. Thing, I really. was going to say Dri- mows like, lawns. Right. right. Steering a horse, riding a lawnmower. I think I think that because Vince Bond calls him a lawn jockey. I think that's the yeah, expression he which uses. which feels coded in ways that I don't want to think about right now. But anyway, in that conversation, it, it comes up that fucking uh, Mike left her. He moved away. He broke up with her. Right. He's been so upset this whole time, and he dumped her. Right. And I just remember, I stood up, and I was yelling. (laughs) I said, you don't get to be sad, motherfucker. You left her. Yeah, yeah. That almost plays like a comedic twist. There's like the moment earlier where you find out that they split six months earlier, which is a piece of information that is very intentionally revealed, you know, late second act of the film. But, like, you, at the beginning of the movie, you think they've broken up in the last, like, two weeks at most. And it's been... he's still checking his machine every, like, 18 hours. Yeah, like a fucking weirdo. But it's been a lot of time. Since he left. Totally. But that's... The state in which she lives. That's the thing. He's just, like, he's this fucking terrible sad sack which is why i need to like him a bit at the end and so i'll i'll I'll, I'll lean into that i agree with that so i was i was yelling you know you left her you don't get to be upset why are you (laughs) waiting for her to call when you're the one who ended things right right shouldn't you be the one to call if if that's what we're doing and then once he starts dancing with heather graham they have like that nice interaction where he's like kind of coaching her on like the move and the breakup which i guess everybody does when they move here yeah i think that's pretty normal yeah most people break up with somebody when they move to los angeles i think yeah i brought mine which is like (laughs) fucked up with me yeah no i I, it's fucking rude honestly i I broke up i think a few months before i left for los angeles and and i in some ways i have a little bit more sympathy for for everybody in this movie because they just moved to los angeles and there is nothing worse than having just moved here (laughs) And, like, the first year is truly harrowing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, like, the weird, like the weirdest, most isolating experience you could have or possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think I was pretty fortunate, but I did have some amount of that. I mean, I moved straight to Encino and was living with some, some nice guys, but they were not, not really like me at all. And I was driving, you know, a very long distance to work every day, so... It's there was there was stuff about six months in is when I met your special gal Steph because we started taking UCB classes together and that was how things sort of like clicked for me is because both of us were like it's fucked up that we're supposed to everyone tells us to wait two years and then we'll like find the people they're supposed to hang out with and it's like but I don't want to wait two years I just want to have friends now please. <laughs> but then a year and a half after that we're like oh yeah it really did just take two years we're fine now everything's fine yeah what happened yeah making friends can be hard it can also be unexpectedly easy I mean my you know Bethy our relationship I, I I don't know if we've ever really talked about this but this is this is great texture for the podcast listeners mm-hmm. but when Bethy mm-hmm. and I met I was told that Bethy would probably not like me um what yeah I I was I would <laughs> we've never talked about this this is amazing whoa this is a reveal. I was told that I would like yeah, you. Yeah, this is revealed live on the pod. I think it was just, uh, <laughs> um, 
because I was a boy and you are rightly discerning. Uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> I, I was just I, I was just given the expectation that you might not. And so I went into it prepared to not vibe. And then I feel like you and I hit it off really quick. I think we were at 4100 and we talked about mm-hmm. Ska and God uh, and then movies. <laughs> the rest yeah, is history. I, I was told that we're very similar people. And that and that 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 played out that that eventually yeah. revealed itself to be true but at the time i was not given that primer i think it's funny because we are like 85 percent the same person yeah and i love i love that the thing that we do differ on the most maybe is our approach to the movies and that's what this podcast is about yeah it's great but it all comes back to that uh having having two beers sitting across from each other and hitting it off quickly i think that's where we were able to reconcile that gap but I think actually you and I are more aligned on swingers than I might have expected. When you pitched this, I was like, "Oh wow, we're we're subverting the expectations." Bethy Bethy wants to open with the bro dog movie that I don't especially love, and then we kind of kind of line up. I think. Well, the thing about me is that I have big aspersions to bro dog. <laughs> Like, when I started going to Tonga Hut in the valley, they have this thing called the Grog Log. And if you drink everything on their checklist, if you spend approximately like $500 at their bar, you get a little plaque with your name on it in the bar. And I was like, I must do this. I never completed my Grog Log because of a lot of reasons. (laughs) But when there is some sort of vaguely masculinized in-group, I feel a desperate need to get into that vaguely masculinized in-group. Maybe that's why I'm in comedy. That could be part of it. <laughs> well, you've, you've, found, uh, you've found your incredibly masculine equal in me, Bethy. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's being dudes. Yeah, I'm really strong. You, know, you wouldn't know that from listening to this, but uh, you, I, I can lift stuff. Here's the thing. I do get weird about how much I can lift, and I get stressed out if something is too heavy for me. <laughs> like, I need to be strong. That's, like, part of it. Everything's too heavy for me, and I do not endeavor to be strong. So that's the 15% where we differ. Yeah, that's part of it. I'm a very strong boy. I'm a good, good lifter. I can carry. I'll help you. I love to help people move just to prove that I'm strong. Next time we record for the podcast, Bethy's going to have to come over to help me lift my computer to take it to other room. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to lift all of your cats out of the room. I'm going to stack them. Uh, that's your greatest utility as a friend. Uh, sorry, wait. Should we should we get back to swingers? Should we should we wrap yes. that up? We were talking about what I was yelling about. The second thing I yelled, I wrote it down because I, I was like, "Oh, you're fully out of pocket right now, Bethy Squires. You don't need to be yelling this at like 10 p.m. on a Tuesday." <laughs> I yelled, "You don't get to win Heather Graham for a little character growth, and that's the wrong lipstick for her." She looks better in peach tones. Peach. <laughs> Heather Graham's so cool. She's so cool. I mean, it's like, it's the right energy for the person to make you like Mike at the end of the movie. But like, Heather Graham should be in everything. She should have yeah. been a lead in more movies. I mean, like, my, my favorite thing she's been in is Twin Peaks. I, I think she's great in it. But I I I, I love Heather Graham. And I, I just wish she'd been given more to work with. Heather Graham was for sure, like, there's some people that 
you imprint on, like, when you are hitting puberty and have a couple crushes. So, like, Felicity Shagwell in Austin Powers 2 is what I call a life crush. <laughs> That's somebody that you crush on for life and everybody else. You you are a baby duck and you sexually imprint, imprint on certain people. So, like, uh, Heather Graham was a life crush for me. And so I I do get mad when she's not wearing peach lipstick because I know what her shades are because we have very similar colorings, me and her. Yeah. That's something that we would talk about in person, I think. Yeah, I sexually imprinted on the uh, Tooth Fairy from Darkness Falls. Uh... <laughs> I've still never seen Darkness Falls, and I want to because another one of my life crushes is Anya from Buffy, the lead of whom is... Uh, the lead of Darkness Falls. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen Darkness Falls since it came out. That that could be. We'll, we'll see how it plays. I'll check that movie out. Maybe it'll be a podcast number. We'll never know. We might know, but it's also possible we'll never know. Right. That's part of the fun. It's the, it's the ambiguity of this podcast. No promises, no closure, no catharsis. That's the watching movies at the bar guarantee. <laughs> we offer, but but a respite from the, but the terrible world outside. <laughs> In the unending hellscape that is late <laughs> capitalism. Oh yeah, it's not cool out there. Thomas, what do you think the theme of Swingers is? Uh, I think to me, see this is, I feel like Pop Quiz freaks me out. I, I think the theme of Swingers revolves around the idea that if you stick it out a little bit longer, something good will come. I think... Mike is volunteering himself to a life of anguish and being an annoying little dickhead. And I think the moment (laughs) that he really allows himself to sort of take a breath um, and see what is in front of him, you know, a bright, a bright future and new opportunities present themselves. So I, I, I think that's what swingers is ultimately about uh, on a thematic level but uh, i'm curious to hear what you think i think it's close it's very similar my thought of the theme was just bring what you have per chance to vibe every time that that fav fucking whips it he is trying to be somebody he is not he is trying to bring something he does not actually have to the table to the bargaining table that is social interaction and every time that happens he just eats shit And then the one time he relates to somebody as if he is a human being and she is a human being, it goes gangbusters. It goes great. So if you just actually bring yourself to social interactions, your life will be much easier. I like that. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about Mike is anytime he's trying too hard, he's a real dickhead. But when uh, when when he calms down a little bit, he's money. So money. And Vince Vaughn... Uh, is a posturing asshole. So for him, lying is bringing what he has to the table. Trent, <laughs> not Vince Vaughn. I'm not saying that about yeah. Vince Vaughn. I like I se, like Vince Vaughn allegedly. a lot in this movie. I think it's when I was watching it, I was trying to separate him from the star image of Vince Vaughn and the sort of enduring legacy of Vince Vaughn, and just see him as this young, kind of like boyish, charming guy. And he's. He's got a really unique screen energy. I, I like him. That was another thought I had while I was watching this movie besides uh, That's the Wrong Lipstick for Heather Graham. Another thought, another thing I yelled near the end of this movie was, oh, I'm going to have to fight Vince Vaughn one day, aren't I? 
Yeah, it could happen. I feel like he might be in I can for see a that spitting happening. and a biting. I, uh, yeah. We'll find uh, out. Vince Vaughn. I watched this movie with my husband, Colin, who edits this podcast, and he thought... Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. And he thought the theme of this movie is, you'd fuck Jon Favreau, wouldn't you? Come on. Yeah. See, I don't... I, I see that, and I also don't Yeah, I think that. that I think this movie makes him out to be, like, so pathetic. I, I wonder if when Doug Lyman talks about being more in Mike's corner... It's just because he likes John Favreau, right? Like they're yeah. friends or something. I wonder. I wonder if he if if that kind of clouds his judgment as to what's really happening on like a story and character level. Because I don't think the character is likable at all. And I can't imagine somebody thinking that the character is likable. Like I've definitely seen things where I can tell the person thinks that they're creating a cool guy. Yeah. And that it's just not landing. Whereas this feels like somebody is creating a schmageggy. Like a meticulous it, Yeah. He's, he's like a grumpy fuck-up loser. Just a dingus. Yeah, there's no dude less fun than John Favreau when he's sitting at the table and Vince Vaughn's telling him to double down. And he's like, I want to double down. I only have $300. Like, he just, he sucks. Why would you withdraw $300 if you don't want to spend, just withdraw the amount of money that you want to gamble? Why would you withdraw more money than you were wanting to gamble in the first place i think we've concluded at least we've concluded the talk about swingers but i do want to talk a little bit about my love of las vegas which we barely touched on in this. right which is crazy because you're a vegas I'm, head we're just gonna have to do more I'm vegas a movies huge vegas head i had an interaction on twitter today with the person who uh was like the lead creative on fallout new vegas he like liked one of my rugs and you love that game, too, I went right? on a New Vegas-themed honeymoon, Thomas. <laughs> the first time that I went to Las Vegas, it was to visit places from the video game New Vegas, and I had a great time, and I would do it again. If any nerds made it to the end of this podcast, you're going to be listening to the next one. You're going to love it. Here's my plan for when, Thomas, you and I are going to go to Vegas. I'm going to take you to show you my Las Vegas. First of all... I'm so excited because I've only ever driven and flown through. Here's what we're going to do. We're not going to drive. We're going to fly. It is much shorter. Tight. It's like $70. You'd spend that on gas anyway. I love this already. We're going to stay, I think, probably at the downtown Grand. My hotel used to be El Cortez, but there is a club that has unza unza music playing until four in the morning across the street from that place so the noise pollution has gotten so loud that i can't stay there anymore so we're going to go to a different downtown hotel that is taller and you're going to get a, a really high up suite so that it's really quiet so we're going to be able to like chill. beautiful we're going to go to the pepper mill diner which is shown in this movie where when um john favreau does the voltaire joke and it doesn't land. Oh, and sick! And then the waitress razzes him. That place is called. <laughs> that place is called the Pepper Mill. It's incredible. Uh, the portions are ginormous. There's this picture of me that'll be in the show notes. Uh, when I got the fruit plate, and the fruit plate is on five plates because it includes an entire <laughs> half pineapple, uh, three scoops of sherbet. Uh, like, we were eating the fruit plate from fucking the pepper mill for three days after I ordered it. That's crazy. So we're gonna go there. They also have an incredible, uh, 
it's in casino as well the fireside lounge where there's this like thing that's like a pool that is somehow on it's a fireplace that's also a pool so it's like water is on fire and it's always playing um like nickelback music videos for some reason oh my and there's god peanuts and and matchbooks because you can smoke in there that's so it's tight really good. i can't fucking wait that's the best thing i've ever heard so we're not gonna gamble we're gonna get a giant plate of fruit <laughs> we're gonna go to the twilight zone themed mini golf we're gonna do the gondola ride through a mall. That's gonna be choice. Uh, we're gonna confront our own mortality by staring a shark in its goddamn face in the aquarium at the Mandalay Bay. This is incredible. I, I, I love Las I Vegas. I love this. The thing is, everything about Las Vegas. Ex- I love everything about Las Vegas except for the gambling. Everything yeah, that sounds like. about right. I, I actually can't believe we're not locking this behind a patreon wall i feel like all the perverts listening just got a a travel agent to give them all the vegas tips oh i have endless vegas tips i tell you what uh you gotta go to the circus circus because once on the hour every hour they have circus acts that you can watch for free so you can see like trained cats or like a tightrope walker or we saw this guy whose whole thing was like he spun around like in this wheel he like rolled around in a wheel I don't know. Wait, so you're telling me Mike and Trent went back to Los Angeles when they could have gone to the circus? They could have gone to the circus circus. To double. They they fucked that whole weekend up. Here's the thing. In Las Vegas, in the Caesars Palace mall, the shopping mall at Caesars Palace, there is a... 15 minute animatronic show called the fall of atlantis where it plays out like these the prince and a princess are vying for the crown of atlantis and then poseidon decides that they're all unworthy and it kills all of them the gods like smite atlantis and it falls into the ocean and it's done via animatronics and projections and it happens right next to the cheesecake factory (laughs) (laughs) so that the flames of atlantis falling are projected onto the sign of the cheesecake factory that is so money it's so funny (laughs) you've been listening to watching movies at the bar (laughs) i'm thomas grabinski you can find us on Twitter at MovieBarPod. Thanks so much for listening. We're uh, we're going to do this again. Thank you, all you beautiful honey babies, for not being skanks. We, no, I'm not going to say that. We here at Watching Movies <laughs> at the Bar podcast fucking love skanks. This is a pro-skank podcast.